Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk about the causes that people care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Joan Blight has spent her entire career learning and understanding the importance of strategy in philanthropy. As president, founder, and managing consultant at the consulting firm Strategic Philanthropy, Joan is one of the leading minds in the philanthropic sector and has spent an entire career in organizational support, guidance, and fund development all across North America. Oh, I love Winnipeg. I love Manitoba. Manitoba's home. Manitoba's home. And and Winnipeg's a wonderful community. It's, um, It's so easy to be engaged here, and it's so creative, and there's so many innovative things you know, that are happening in town. And uh, the sense of community is Mm -hmm. something that's very important to me. And I don't think I'd realized how important that was until I left Winnipeg. Joan has many accolades and awards for her work in the charitable sector and nonprofit world, including the 2018 Manitoba Philanthropy Award for Outstanding Fundraising Professional. I sat down with Joan to talk about humble beginnings, the importance of community, and the methodology of philanthropy in our modern world. Because we want to create stronger and healthier communities for everyone. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Um, You know, I told you this on the phone a couple, maybe a week ago or two, but you are literally the inspiration for this podcast because the last time we spoke, which was for uh, the radio show, um, I remember sitting across from you and thinking, I wish I I had more than 10 minutes to talk to this woman. So thank you for being the inspiration. Well, (laughs) thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure because you have a very kind of unique background. You have a very interesting background. You've been in the world of philanthropy and helping organizations make the world a better place for the better part of, you know, two, three decades now. So um, my first question is like, what, take me back to when you first started. What was some of the inspirations when you first started your career and who or what inspired you to start to kick things off? Well, while I didn't know it at the time, it really started when I was a child attending Sunday school. Every week we gave in the church that I was raised in money to help local needs as well as international development in terms of, we called it mission and service, but we always knew that we were helping underprivileged people. Mm-hmm. And one of the other events at the church that I, it just came to me, you know, quite um, viscerally when I was thinking about this was every year we celebrated White White Gift Sunday, which was a day in December, and we all brought gifts wrapped in white tissue paper. They were all designed to help families living in northern Manitoba. And I literally remember my mom uh, patching jeans or, you know, washing clothes and so on. And they, a lot of it was secondhand, but it was, it was still a gift. It's, I've, recycling is not a new thing for me. It's been yeah. part of my life forever. Mm-hmm. And those were things that, that meant a great deal to me in terms of, I realized they, they were then the foundation. And then as I grew and was involved as a teenager, I belonged to a group called the Canadian Girls in Training, or CGIT as it's known. And one of the activities we did is we canvassed for charitable organizations. Mm. We canvassed in the community. And so, you know, it's just been very natural. Another major event when I was young was that um, our community, small community, rural community in Manitoba, built its own skating rink. Ooh, that's right up my alley. It opened in 1963. What community was that? Oakville, Manitoba. Oh, yeah, cool. 
And our family was very involved in that. Um, I'm from a family of seven children, and we all skated, hockey, figure skating, you know, all those things. But I remember my dad canvassing for that as well. Now, the effort itself was largely volunteer, but they still had to raise money for the materials and that kind of thing. It's all about community, right? And everyone kind of knows everyone when the, sm- when the town yes. is that small. So how do you transfer those skills onto a more uh, larger scale when it comes to a city or when it comes to a country? Like, uh, that's something I'm struggling with quite frequently working at the Winnipeg Foundation is that, you know, it's, it's easy to take care of you and your own and then you and, your, and the people on your block and maybe in your community. But how do you transfer those, that, that mindset to, to really want to ha- have empathy for the entire local community as opposed to just the ones that are in your immediate circle? Well, I think it comes from experience. It comes from helping others. Uh, and, and it comes feeling from, good after you've... Well, you always, you always feel better after you've helped someone. But mm-hmm. also, in order to get things done in, a commu- in, a, in any community, it's the same here in a, in a city, uh, you can't do things on your own. It's a collective mm-hmm. effort. Mm-hmm. And so it's around, you know, when there's identifying a need and when there's a need for something, then recruiting the people, the leadership that you need, and then there's usually money involved in right. that in terms of fundraising. And it's, it's all coalesced around what that need is in order to address that. And was that just driven into you from your parents and from, from the people at the church, or who was kind of the driving force behind? Well, my parents certainly, it was just a way of life for mm-hmm. us. It, it, it wasn't, uh, it was just a way of life. It's what I grew up knowing. Right. You That's know? just how the way it is. Well, and in a small community, you, we didn't, like, in, I'm dating myself, but in a small community, 500, like we didn't have a a movie theater, for example. And so I remember when I was in grade eight, my cousin and I decided we wanted to show some films. And we wrote to the National Film Board. We had to then raise some money because we had to send the money first. They they would send us, and this was all done through the mail. Like there was no email in those (laughs) days or anything like that. Not tweeting somebody for that, yeah, no No. Um, But we organized that because we wanted to have that experience. Mm -hmm. And so we did it through the school and we had... uh, I don't know, three or four films shown one winter in the school auditorium. That's we, so cool. We made popcorn because there weren't facilities at the school for that. But but we wanted to replicate that experience. Well, you're learning at a very young age the power of of volunteerism, the power of sort of getting up and doing it yourself. You know, a lot of I think far too there's far too much apathy in the world where you want something done and oh, I wish that could be the way it was. But it seems like you were the type of person to just well, let, let's do it. There, there wasn't an option, right? right? We didn't know any differently. Or it's like I was also a member of 4-H when I was a teenager, and it also is a very good organization. Yeah, absolutely. Leadership development skills that are developed through through that as well. And uh, I've always been somebody that, you know, as, you, as I say, yeah, it's about getting it done, seeing a need and getting it done. Well, it's cool to see how much can get done. Do you ever think about this, the scope and scale of, the, you know, starting back in church just donating these little little gifts wrapped in tissue paper to now there's multi-million dollar campaigns and stuff that you're you've been a part of and you've inspired and you've helped come to fruition so like would you have ever dreamt that there could be this much of a of a growth in scale from from that little girl way back in the day right could not have possibly it's crazy yeah but what's been so rewarding is uh throughout my fundraising career and then latterly as a consultant where sometimes I've operated as a staff person or a contract staff with an organization or I've been consulting to an organization or in some cases working directly with donors is is when you see that desire of people who want to give back 
And then the, the magic in it is about matching their interests with what the community needs are, you know, at any given point in time. And um, lots of people want to give. And I, mm-hmm. I promote the joy in giving. It's not about arm twisting and mm-hmm. whatever. It's about, and of course for everybody, it's one of the biggest motivators, seeing the difference that yeah. your gift makes. Part of, part of what I've learned through, through this job as well is it's not really that easy to give. You know, if you have a cause that you care about and a little bit of money or a little bit of time, it's kind of hard to find out where that should go. Or, or like, and, and you really do need someone to, to facilitate that and to put those people together. What's your favorite part about that whole process like you've worked probably in every single role there is so what what's your favorite moment or favorite part or favorite kind of aspect of that well it's it's about the learning and the aha moments when people see are you still learning oh absolutely okay. every day mm-hmm. I, I i may as well be six feet under if i don't <laughs> learn something sure. every day but also with people when you see when they really understand what's what's needed in a particular situation mm. and that they get excited about mm-hmm. it and and so there is that because that's part of my job is is in my view is to help really help people understand and that whole educational component if you will but it's also like being um, a missionary for the cause if you will mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent. how has it changed over the years like how has your role in that evolved since you started, you know, I think strategic philanthropy was 2002, right? So how have you noticed maybe trends changing or maybe how people give or what they want to support or how, what, what's the biggest change that you've noticed in, the, in, in your career, over your career? Well, there's huge changes and the changes continue to accelerate. Um, I mean, technology-wise Technology alone. is a huge, huge factor. Mm-hmm. Um, What's also changed is the the whole profession, fund development, fundraising has become so much more professionalized. And there are um, techniques, tools and techniques mm-hmm. that are more effective in some places than others. And so the, the kind of training that's needed uh, has, has changed a lot. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of mine has been through experiential and ongoing education because when I started in the profession... <laughs> There wasn't, fun, there wasn't, a there wasn't training. There no. Was no handbook to it, go by. It was uh, learn as you go, but it. So there's that has changed a great deal. Um, one of the things that's not good uh, in my mind that's also changed is that staff that work in fund development there's a huge turnover in staff mm-hmm. because there's a, a, an imbalance between supply and demand. Right. And so as a result, often people leave and. Or when the grass is greener on the other side. For sure. And I think it does a huge disservice to the industry. I believe somebody has to be in a job for a minimum of five years. To, to get a, it? To affect change. To get yeah. it and to affect change. Mm-hmm. And to make the improvements as you go along. And so that's one of the things. Um, there are changes in expectations, I believe, also in terms of donors. There are many changes. And the whole aspect of accountability of impact of your gift, mm-hmm. how, how is it helping? How is it making a difference? Right, you're not just signing a check and saying, yeah, figure it out. No, yeah, yeah. no. And there are many, uh, in particular, um, not just major donors, but for major donors, for example, many of them want to be much more involved, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, in terms of where their money's going, whereas other people who are, who are more of the, um, the average citizen, if you will, they might be more engaged now through some type of event that's raising money for a cause or yeah, that kind sure. of thing. 
So though those are are definite changes. Technology, yes, mm-hmm. and it's um, like crowdfunding. How long has that been around? Right, three or four years. Yeah. But it's having an impact. Millions, maybe probably billions of you know, dollars. Uh, that are raised. Yeah. They're not, they're helping. Mm-hmm. They're not part of the formal charitable sector. Right. People are not receipted or don't receive yeah. tax receipts for those. Uh, and yet they're giving and they're helping. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I've been struggling this with this a lot, and something I really wanted to ask you about is philanthropy as a, as a safety net or as a band-aid for, for some of society's ills, if you want to call it that. Do you think, is there ever a role for, for philanthropy to kind of take a more fundamental approach in fixing problems as opposed to, um, I don't know how to ask this better, but if philanthropy is sort of a band-aid, how do we find a way to, in, to, to fix the systems that caused the, the wound in the first place? Do you know what I mean? And totally. I'm interested in, in, your, in your perspective. I absolutely, th- it does have a role, and it is playing a role in, in certain areas. Um, for example, End Homelessness Winnipeg mm-hmm. is a collection of organizations working together to address those problems. There's no one organization that can solve it alone. Right. It's got government involved as well as uh, other people from the sector. Mm-hmm. So there's things like that. Poverty is another area. There's the Poverty Reduction Council, yeah. and there's some initiatives that they've undertaken. Um, there's uh, the McConnell Foundation out of Montreal is a very big player in uh, working to address systemic issues. And so, for example, they're funding a project or a program here in Winnipeg in the uh, Point Douglas area mm. that is helping to, is designed to help children before they reach school age, um, school age, to be ready for school. Cool. And so they're testing that and then measuring that in terms of the difference it makes mm-hmm. for their participation. So yes, I, I believe there is a role. It, it can't just be philanthropy yeah. though, because for so many things, it's it's really multi-level and mm-hmm. multifaceted. And government has a role to play mm-hmm. and all three levels in different ways, as well as the private sector and philanthropy. Has it been hard or interesting navigating that world and that kind of crossover? You know, like you're probably in the same room with politicians and and donors and and grantees and all that. Like, how do you kind of balance that and and try to, like, there's many systems layered on top of of each other. So how do you, how do you navigate that world? How did you? I I haven't, well... I haven't been directly involved in some of those things. I've been involved on the fringes, Nolan, and so I'm, I've been in meetings and in sessions where there are all of those people. But you have to be very clear at the outset in terms of what you're trying to achieve. Expectations. What are the objectives, vision, values. And you have to have shared values. If you mm-hmm. don't have shared values, things don't work. For sure. You know, so. Moving forward, what do you see coming down the pipe in the future that, needs to be addressed? Like, what are some of the biggest issues that you think people need to be talking about and need to be getting out to to, to try to solve? Well, one of the things for -for not-for-profit organizations is, or charitable organizations, both, although they're different in some Mm -hmm. ways, is many people really don't understand how they operate. So the lack of understanding is can create a barrier, obviously, to then generating support for Mm -hmm. them. And there are lots of good news stories that happen in this town, in this province, every day. They generally don't make headlines, you know, in terms of whatever. But there are all kinds of people doing fabulous things, 
in all sectors of the community. And, and, and those, so though often those things aren't well known. Mm-hmm. So there's the whole thing around communication yeah. and, and so on. The other thing that's a huge issue in the uh, charitable sector is the lack of unrestricted funding. Core funding, it's referred to mm-hmm. for the operations and so on, because every organization has to have a home. They, there's heating, there's lights, or whatever, and staff. And m- many people do not understand really what that is and how critical that is, mm-hmm. because government has also used to, or rather, has moved to become much more project-based right, funding. Right, 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 right. And places like the Winnipeg Foundation traditionally have been project-based. That's That was what the foundations did. But there's now, it's we're now reaching a point where there has to be a re-examination of roles and responsibilities around that funding because uh, you can't, there's no flexibility for organizations. Right, right. And I, I guess that just comes with education and understanding the importance, totally. right? So the once, once donors and governments understand how important that core funding is, then it's a little easier to, to allow that to be what the money's for. Well, and also if they understand how an organization operates, some people, some people still think, oh, they should just cut the fat, just take. Yes, you know, you and that like, a lot. if you don't have any exposure to a, an organization, I, I can understand why people think that. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, um, the other big thing for uh, charitable organizations, I think, is along with the core funding, is that they get caught in such um, annulitis, if you will, mm-hmm. because of their fun- most of the funding is done on an annual basis. And if it can be done on a multi-year basis, and this is something that the Winnipeg Foundation is, is um, mm-hmm. working with right now, and I think the United Way also does some, that alleviates, like the amount of time and energy that has to go into getting funds every year for an agency, it's like they're hand to mouth. Like the whole long term and strategic looks um, that people would take often, it's just, it's, it's a, um, a luxury that's not available to them yeah, no based kidding. on the day to day survival yeah exactly they're just trying to keep the doors open exactly. and then other people are worried about well where are you going to be see yourself in five years and that's right like, ah, well hopefully we can be here for a year so tell me about a time or a story or a moment that really felt impactful that that you always go back to or a story that really made you think i'm doing i'm doing what i'm here I, i'm doing the job that i was put here to do well, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago uh, in working with an organization I've worked with for some time called Gaining Resources Our Way. And they were undertaking a strategic plan that I was facilitating for them. And part of the process was to um, engage parents of, in the program in, in a couple of focus groups to get feedback from them about their adult children who, are, who participate here. Okay, And these are young adults who from high school graduation, then into their 30s, uh, often there's no or very few supports for in the community. And this program is highly tailored to the individual, uh, customized, they have customized plans in terms of developing the skill sets and mm-hmm. the learnings for each of them. And facilitating one evening with about eight, no, maybe 10 people in the room, and the changes that they saw in their children, it just sent shivers down my spine. And it wasn't anything I did directly, it was the program that, that I have supported and helped you know, get its grounding and its feet and, and so on. 
But what that program has done to help so many of those young people have much greater independence, and not just independence, but greater um, self-satisfaction in their lives. Yeah. And it was just, and that one mom said she, she just couldn't believe the change in attitude of her son, mm. and that he was now so helpful. She said it used to be when they went to the grocery store, it was always a, you a know, struggle, yeah. a struggle. And now, uh, you know, he goes, he wants to go and he wants to help. And they're taught life skills in, in the program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right, right from cooking to cleaning That's to unreal. grocery shopping, uh, laundry, like all of those wow. things. And it's marvelous to see people, I mean, in this case, people's potential develop. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're wanting to do for everybody, mm -hmm. right, is to help people's potential develop as they would like to see it develop. But listening to the impact that these parents felt. That's huge. That's probably a situation, too, where they tried everything or, you know, everything within their power to, to, to solve these problems. And then as, once you get an expert, and there's probably knowledge that we've gained over the past 10, 15 years in those areas that we had no idea about and, yes. and how to actually approach it in those custom ways. That's very interesting. Yeah. Is that one of the main causes? Like we talked in, on the radio program, I asked you, so what's the main cause you kind of, uh, that you support, but you listed off maybe five or 10, but is there a couple, two or three causes that you really feel near and dear to your heart? I remember special needs was one of them. Special needs, but um, social services mm -hmm. would be where my heart, my yeah first and foremost is mm -hmm. because I believe people need a hand up. Yeah. Many people need a hand up, not a handout, but a hand up. And, um, and I, I believe that I have a responsibility to help where I can. That kind of probably stems back to when you're in church and, and giving those people a hand up. And knowing that even though uh, we were not well to do in the least, there's Give always somebody. Can. Yeah, it's, it's about giving what you can. Yeah. What would you say to just the average Canadian or average Winnipegger when it comes to philanthropy? Like, what do you think we need to do differently just as a general population when it comes to giving others a hand up? Well, I think it's finding out what they're interested in first. Mm. Like, the don like the potential donors? Yes. Yeah. 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 So what is, it that, what, what is it that you're passionate about? What is it that really moves you? Mm. And then... Are you doing something in that area? It's it's about asking, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, I believe that in terms of being engaged is is the key part of being in community and is part and parcel of a civil society, mm -hmm. and and so on. So I think I would probably start with asking. Did you always know this, or did you learn this along the way? I learned it along yeah. the way, because too often. People are very busy trying to, in quotes, sell their cause mm -hmm. or whatever. And I don't believe it's a, as much a sales thing as it is a marketing, which is much more of, a, of an exchange in terms of what is it that you're interested in. This is what we have to offer. You have right. to sell in so yeah, far yeah, as saying, yeah. this is what we have to offer and this is what we're doing. If something you know appeals to you about this, and but it's you're almost interested. like making a new friend, you know, like you, you if if you're into the same things that I am, come work with, you know, like come. That's right, come and it, friend raising has to come before mm. fundraising. Yeah, it doesn't work otherwise. Making those connections. Yes, absolutely. What's your? I mean, we were just talking about this before we started recording, but um, what's your five-year plan? Like, where do you see? Are you going to continue down this path? What do you? What's what's your what's your dream goal for the next five or ten years? Well, I've been, in the last year, I've been mentoring mm. uh, a development professional from the Indigenous community. Oh, cool. 
through the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and it's a national program that just became national last year in terms of there being 20 fellows selected across the country, and she was the only one of Indigenous origin. Wow. And so it's been a wonderful learning opportunity for me, and I do want it to continue, mm. and so I see doing more in that area to learn more and, and possibly to help in terms of sharing some of my skill sets and experience uh, because we need, we need that. And so it's all around the inclusiveness mm -hmm. and it is around truth and reconciliation as well. What sorts of questions does she have for you when, when you're mentoring her? Well, first of all, we started by, she had some ideas about what she wanted to do because she had to have a specific project okay. and a project with objectives, a project plan, yeah. uh, an outcome in terms of a report and so on. So we started by, she had some ideas, mm -hmm. and so we sort of talked some of those Maybe honed through. in on them a bit, yeah. I did, yeah. And then one was, she really wanted to do something. Her name is Sharon Redsky. Oh, yeah. Okay. And That's she familiar. wanted to do something around truth and reconciliation. And I said to her, I said, you know, Sharon, I think part of the problem is I think a lot of people want to do something, but they don't know where to start. There's a huge gap in terms of desire and then knowing what you can do in a tangible way to help. So I said, why don't you interview some people hmm. and just find out what they know or what they don't know. Yeah. And so that's what she did. And that uh, she she's written the paper and it will be presented, I believe, to the local chapter of AFP, I hope, before June. Well, yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity for you, especially to, I mean, this is why I wanted to talk to you because you, you have a wealth of knowledge that needs to be shared and passed on to the next generation of, of leaders so we can have another leader like you coming up through the ranks. You know? Well, and I'm also just trying to reflect on that in terms of how I can help in that mm -hmm. regard um, because I know there's a, there is a richness of experience that I would love to share. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, what is the best way to do it? should write a book maybe. Is that ever in, in, the, in, the, in the thought process? Well, I've thought about it. I've, it's a lot of work, I guess, though, I, too. Well, you know, is it writing? Is it, I, I, I don't know, is mm -hmm. it writing? Is it podcasts? Is it yeah. blogs? Yeah, I, like, above, I don't maybe. know, you all know, in terms of all of those things. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I noticed interesting about your career is it's, it hasn't just been in Winnipeg. You've been Calgary, yeah. Toronto, you know, North America, all, all sorts over the place. You mentioned a little bit earlier, there's different tactics based on different areas of, of need. So how does Winnipeg um, differ from out west or out in Toronto or down south? Or, you know, how, do, how do we kind of shape up when it comes to how philanthropy is treated and how the community um, takes care of each other? Well, Winnipeg has a very broad-based economic base, mm. for one thing, for mm -hmm. starters. We're not a city with a lot of head offices, uh, and we're a city that's rich in terms of different industries, whether yeah. it's manufacturing or transportation. It's not just the oil industry or just no, the, you know, no. Hollywood or whatever. Yeah. So there's a, there is a real difference in that, and after I left the United Way of Winnipeg, which was in 1986, I went and directed the campaign in the United Way of Calgary because they'd lost their campaign director, and I was there for a year. And so my first assumption was it was another United Way, but it was a very different organization than the one I'd left. Hmm. And also, the town was very different. The city was very different, obviously, because it was oil-rich right, and, right. and so on. But they had just gone through a downturn. And so they had reduced their campaign goal from less than what they'd raised the year before. 
by half a million dollars. And I went, I started on July 1st. I said, you can't reduce your goal. The needs aren't any the less. Yeah, that seems... And so I said, I'll demonstrate. And they, everybody was just so concerned. I said, I'll demonstrate through analysis how we can raise more money. And we more than, we, hmm. we exceed. Well, they set the goal at 6.5 and we raised 7.1. Interesting. You know, and then I also found, and so in terms of Winnipeg and the fundraising I did here, uh, you have to know how to, you really have to know how to fundraise. You work very, very hard. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, you, you can't afford, because it is so broadly based, you can't afford to not cross any T's or dot yeah. any I's. You can't just focus on one industry or one group of people or one one area of the city. You right? can't. You you have to know where your your larger donors or your larger gifts are coming mm-hmm. from. But then I was in, in Toronto, and I'll never forget the campaign chair. And our goal that year in '88 was thirty nine million dollars. And I knew I knew this is for United Way as well. United Way okay, as well, yeah. and I knew we were going to make the goal because yeah. the, the money was there because we had done enough. But my campaign chairman shared with me one day that one of the largest companies at the time that owned the company that he was the CEO of okay. just let him know that if there were any issues in shortfall, they'd make up the difference. Really. Just like that. Just like snap their fingers. This is Toronto. Yeah, it's all about who you know. Interesting. And and big with very big pockets, right? So you could probably choose to work and live anywhere. Why Winnipeg? Oh, I love Winnipeg. I love Manitoba. Manitoba is home. Manitoba is home, and and Winnipeg is a wonderful community. It's um, it's so easy to be engaged here and. It's so creative, and there's so many innovative things, you know, that are hap- happening in town. And uh, the sense of community is mm-hmm. something that's very important to me. And I don't think I'd realized how important that was until I left Winnipeg. It's not 500 people, but it kind of feels like a town of five. You know, there's little pockets of, of mm-hmm. Oakburn or Oakbank. Oakville. Oakville. Yep. There's so many oaks. That's there. all right. <laughs> I'm we from often, Russell, so there's, oh, okay. you know, 1,500 people, yes. too, so it's, yeah. it's, that's why I like Winnipeg, too. It's just this small-knit community, and everyone kind of knows each other, and, and it's a good feeling. It's like the Cheers song. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. you want to go where everybody knows your name. What, in your work now, what are some of the most common issues that organizations come to you to solve? Like, what do they say, hey, we need help, you're the best, can you solve this for us? Well, strategic planning, I think, would be a large one. Just getting a strategy? or um, would developing strategy and, and based on, because the kind of strategic planning I do is, is based on analysis and mm-hmm. evaluation. It always involves numbers. Mm-hmm. Data drives strategy, and a lot of people don't really understand that. Or believe it. Yeah. yeah. And so in terms of all your, your revenue, your expenditures, and, and all of those kinds of things, and then what are some of the, the options? So I, I think strategic planning is one. There's no question um, around fund development helping, depending, and sometimes people don't even really know what they need. Mm -hmm. Another need that has really evolved that I'm really happy that organizations now are aware of of, is the need for a case for support. Mm -hmm. And the case for support is something that um, it's it's a very important 
process more than the document itself, but a process because it's internal. To get to know yourself almost, right? To get to know yourself. Then to have a written document that's assigned off on by the board. And then from that, that provides the opportunity for all your case statements, whether it's in a PowerPoint presentation, a solicitation letter, a promotional brochure, a direct mail letter, all of those kinds mm-hmm. of things. So that is certainly something that's that's sure. big. And it just seems like the the as we as we as this industry, if you want to call the philanthropic industry an industry, evolves, people kind of understand what's required and what's necessary. Whereas, like you said, there was no handbook 20, 25 years ago about how to do things. It was just kind of people wanting to make the world a better place. Well, the other thing that strategic philanthropy does is we conduct for organizations feasibility studies prior to they're undertaking a capital campaign. Oh, okay. So like getting some expectations in line a little bit? And so, yes, there's a process that we follow and then go out and interview potential potential donors to that organization to help them assess what they think is realistic in terms of the need that's being identified by that organization. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a very, it's, it's also called a planning study because it's, one of the first steps that you take as you're planning because you're wanting to get the input of your constituency. For sure. Your donor constituency. Well, and I guess every, I mean, it's like the the kids you were talking about earlier, every case is different, so you need a custom plan Mm -hmm. for every organization just as much as as you would for a a child. Totally, yeah, totally. And and so, and that's that's important. And there are many that don't have any background in fund development right. that are, you know, and so when you're starting from scratch, there's a lot of pieces to put together. For sure. Well, it's probably a fun gig though. It is. Yeah, it is. Sure. It's always great going out and meeting with people. And well, at the, at the end of our time together, I'm hoping to do a little segment I'm going to call Just Because, where we're going to ask you a series of questions, seven questions, just because, and I want you to just kind of answer off the top of your head. Don't think about it too much, but we'll see how this goes. First question, what is the first cause you you really remember caring about? It was in my church. Yeah, that group. Mm -hmm. And still faith-based contributions make up almost 50% of charitable donations. I did not know that. It's under 50% now, but it it was over 50% at one time, but it's it's about 45 or 46. It is. In terms of all of, yeah, it is. And the other th- research that has been done is that um, people who attend church are often better donors, or more generous, I shouldn't say better, right, right, more right. generous donors. Interesting. But I think it's because of that need mm-hmm. uh, that's identified, and, and it's also part of all religions. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter what your everyone. background, about helping your neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. Question number two. This is kind of a big one, so uh, let's just see how we do. If if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, if you could just snap your fingers, what's the first thing you would do in support of, let's say, the social services uh, uh, cause? I think I'd develop a an educational program mm-hmm. and community engagement program. That education is so important. To help people learn more, and that offers experience, because when, once people experience it, you know, whether it's like Days of Caring or, or, or the companies that have days that they're employed, Days of Caring go out and help different mm-hmm. organizations, whether they paint an office or whether, well, it doesn't matter what they're doing, yeah. they learn more about what the people that are being served and the clientele mm-hmm. and the kind of needs that those organizations have. I think about that a lot as far as 
when do you develop empathy for a certain situation or a certain person or a certain cause? And unfortunate, or fortunately or unfortunately, it's only when you have that personal experience. It's often when you have that personal experience. So getting out and, and, and interacting yes. with what you're supporting is so important. And so it can be at any age. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're raised with it from the get-go, then that's one thing. But we always used to say in terms of fund development that even if somebody's a non-donor, you still go back and ask the next year because his or her circumstances For sure. may have changed and it may change the response. Mm -hmm. And that happens. Right. Third question, what is the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about that cause, about the cause that you care about the most? Cost is a huge mm. issue for people. People being concerned that their admin, but more, more importantly, their fundraising costs are too high. And uh, it, it, we need to change the paradigm where even in terms of fund development, it needs to be seen as an investment right? as opposed to a cost. Mm -hmm. Because without that investment, you can't generate that other revenue. Um, but some people still have the idea that it should be less than whatever percentage right, it is. Right, right. Just a blank number, arbitrarily that decided they, that by they, the Yes. And also see the cost piece as a demonstration of efficiency. But you can't, like, there's the question of then effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Because efficiency is not enough. Because right. if, yeah, you're if you're not you're a lean organization <laughs> that doesn't get the job done, then fine. Exactly. And, huh. and that's a very, very, uh, a big, big factor. Well, I guess that's, that's where the numbers come in, right? You need to really be based in, in the numbers. Yeah, yeah. You need to know. Hmm. How do you know when it's time to throw in the towel? So how do you know when it's time to, to give up on, not, that's a bad way to put it, but how no. do you know when it's time to quit? Like, have you ever quit in your life? And how did, how did you know it was time to pull the plug? Yes, I have. Um, and every situation's different, but there was a campaign that we were getting underway for an organization, and it was a compl it was complicated uh, because it was for a facility in which a group used that facility. Okay. The group that used the facility was not charitable. Okay. Not for profit, but not charitable. Okay. And in order for us to raise money for that facility to restore it. There was the Friends Of right, yeah, created, yeah, yeah. but Friends Of had to be more than just a fundraising arm. There had to be programming, education, and so on that was part and parcel. An actual function other than just, the, just that, the cash. Exactly. And the group that, had remain, uh, that were the tenants, the major tenants, and had been for many years, couldn't understand that. Hmm. And so it was a group decision, but we had a senior volunteer leadership, and... Um, you could kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit? Or? We tried. There were many strategies we tried. We went this way, this way, and this way. And at a certain point, we knew that there wasn't any point in going any further. And so we made a decision then to discontinue. Mm -hmm. How did you feel after that? Oh, like it was very devastating, it was, obviously. It was very painful. Yeah. yeah. Very devastating. Yes. Is there was there a, was there a big lesson out of that that you that stuck with you? I'm not sure because I don't know that we I don't know that we could have done things differently mm -hmm. or I don't know I don't think there was mm -hmm. particularly um, but you do know that when you've got two bodies that aren't 
going along the same line that it's not going to work. Yeah, so that's a good I lesson. I mean, th- for sure, that's, right. I mean, that's a lesson. Um, Make sure everyone's on the same page, if not and in the same book. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think we didn't, uh, we didn't fully understand that. And I don't think we could have, mm, as gotcha. it turns out. Yeah, I don't think we could have in that case. So take me back to Oakville. You're 10 years old. What advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to her? I'd say be kind to yourself. Hmm. Why? Why that specific? Well, I... I, You weren't for a while or what? No, I've always been very hard on myself. It was like nothing was ever good enough, you know? Mm. And uh, it's only latterly in my later years that I've been able to let the need for perfection dissipate. (laughs) I mean, that's a balancing act too, because you you very likely wouldn't be this successful if not for that drive. Perhaps not. (laughs) That's interesting. Would you trade um, success for a a less harsh uh, self-evaluation? Some success? Mm. Not a lot. I mean, some, but not not a lot. But fair. Mm What do you want to be remembered for? Well, I think first and foremost, my passion for philanthropy. I think for kindness and generosity. And I think for my loyalty. Hmm. Well, that's what I will remember you for. Thank you for being a guest on The Cause and Effect, uh, Joan Blight. We really appreciate you being able to come down, spend so much time with us, tell us about um, your expertise and your history and just everything that we've talked about today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Joan Blight for being a guest on the Because and Effect podcast. Like I said at the start of the conversation, uh, she was the motivation to want to start this whole thing off. So uh, yeah, without Joan, this whole podcast would not have existed. Thank you to her and thank you for listening to this. Um, I'm not sure if people still listen to the outros, but I still keep making them. So might as well keep on talking, I guess. If someone you know works in the philanthropic sector and would benefit from hearing Joan and mine's conversation, be sure to send it out to them. I I find that uh, whenever my friends share podcasts with me or song uh, suggestions, it's always a little bit more um, important or a little bit more special when someone makes that personal connection and says, hey, I really think you'd enjoy listening to this. So if you could send it to a friend, send it to a family member, um, send it to a colleague, it helps us out greatly. And thank you for subscribing. Thank you for liking. Thank you for sharing. Um, It's been quite overwhelming having all of the feedback and all the support for the podcast. So thank you so much. All of the music on the Cause and Effect podcast was composed and produced by Trenton Burton. You can find out more of his music at trentonburton.com. Because and Effect is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation with special thank you to Robert Zirk and Sonny Promolo for production assistance. My name is Nolan Bicknell. You can follow me at Nolan Bicknell on all social media and you can follow the Winnipeg Foundation at WPGFDN as well for all sorts of information about the podcast and everything that the foundation is up to. Uh, Like I said, I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off. Thank you very much for listening. And remember, it can't rain all the time. Bye-bye.